Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do. Will you take it and turn to Acts, Acts chapter 1. Going to preach very quick this morning. The guy leading the music took up way too much time, so now we're short. So if you've got your Bibles with you, grab it, turn to Acts chapter 1. And when you found that, if you'd be so kind as to stand in the reading, uh, the honor of the reading of God's Word, and we'll start in that 15th verse. And we'll read down to the end of the chapter uh, very quickly. And it reads like this. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke uh, before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akel Damah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalm, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Father, this morning, we have worshipped you through singing. We have worshipped you through fellowship. Now, Father, we are going to come through your throne of grace through your word. The most powerful thing that can happen this morning is for us to take your word into our hearts. So let that happen. Do that by making very little of me and very much of you that we may see you in all of your glory today. This we pray in the name of your precious son, the word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As you know, for uh, a few weeks now, we've been walking through the book of Acts together, through the book of Acts, and we've been looking at the formation of the church Last week, if you remember, we looked at the beginning of the journey, this journey that was beginning for them. The disciples gathered in the upper room to wait just as Jesus had commanded them. And if you remember, they were faithful in their obedience to his command. They fellowshiped together very frequently and they fervently prayed together, fervently prayed together. I tell you that because in this time of being in one accord and in fellowship and prayer together, God shows up by Focusing them on his plan is coming immediately out of them coming together in that faithful obedience, frequent fellowship and the, and the fervent prayer that God shows him his plan. This week we're going to look at we're going to look at the fact that God has a plan. How many of you are thankful that God has a plan? Aren't you? Even when it seems like the world's turned upside down, you know, God has a plan. Even when it seems like everything is wrong, God has a plan. Even when nothing in your life seems to be going right, God has a plan. And that's exactly where the disciples find themselves in the upper room. Remember the story. Their leader who had left had come back 
They'd seen him and now he'd ascended and left yet again. He'd left yet again. They are now huddled in a room. They're afraid that the Jews are coming after them next. Because remember, that's who came after Jesus. And they're huddled up there thinking that the multitudes, the multitudes that had followed them all around, the multitudes that had gone everywhere Jesus had gone, was now just a handful. As a matter of fact, the original 12 disciples was now down to 11. Could you imagine how they looked at the world at this moment? From a mountaintop to a valley. And as they huddled in that room together, God shows up. God shows up and God shows out to remind them that He is in control. How does God do this? How does God do this in them? There are three things I noticed in this passage as I read it this morning that reminds me that God has a plan. The very first thing I see that, God, that tells me God has a plan is God's people that are gathered there. God's people that are gathered there. While Jesus walked on the earth, hundreds if not thousands of people had followed him. At his trial, those same people, if you remember, cried out for Barabbas. And said, put Jesus to death. At his crucifixion, everybody fled. Including his disciples, if you remember. At his resurrection, the ones closest to him had trouble even believing that he had risen from the dead. And now they were left alone. Now they were left alone. They were waiting on this promise that Jesus had given them of this Holy Spirit that was coming. This Holy Spirit that was coming. And you'll notice it says there in verse 15, and in those days. Now what are these days? Remember where they're at. Jesus had ascended back to heaven. He said there would come a Holy Spirit in in the days ahead. You need to wait. We know now from the backside of the story that that's about a 10-day period of time. Hence the word Pentecost. Forty days he was with them. He ascended. Ten days later became Pentecost. Penta, five. Fifty. So it's the fiftieth day. So there's, just, there's these ten days that, that they were waiting after the ascension. So somewhere we're right in the middle of those, those ten days that they've been gathered together. And who were the ones that were gathered together? Very quickly in verse 13 and 14, if you remember, it gives us the name Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. They all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. It just gives us the women and it says, and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. We could say that there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 20 people or so gathered together that are waiting. So there's so there's these these people. There's only eleven disciples. There's the women. There's Jesus' mother that's mentioned. There's his brothers. We're not sure, but let's say there's there's twenty people gathered in the upper room. Well, then whenever you look at that verse fifteen that we read, it says, "In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples." And you'll probably have in your Bible. I hope you do that. You've got a parentheses there, and written inside of that says, "Altogether, the number of names was about a hundred and twenty. A hundred and twenty. How did they go from 20 in verse 14 to 120 in verse 15? See, while being faithful in their obedience to the weight, they apparently were overjoyed with what Jesus had said and in seeing him risen from the dead. Apparently, they couldn't keep their mouth closed. And in the white space between verse 14 and verse 15, 100 people were added. Somewhere in there, People were added to their number. People were added to your number, their number. 
But pastor, you may ask, how does this show that God has a plan? How does this show that God has a, a plan? Notice there's only one name mentioned out of the 120. Did you notice it lumps the other 119 together? And it says there's only one name mentioned. Sometimes the smallest of things need the greatest of detail. Think about the name that's mentioned. It's the name Peter. The name Peter. It's in this name of Peter that we can look and see that God has had a plan all along for this moment in the life of the church. Who is this Peter? Flip back very quickly, and I do mean quickly, back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. If you're taking notes, you might just want to write these down, but let me just give you a picture of, of Peter real fast. Matthew 4, 18, we see Peter come on the scene when it says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, cast a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So we see right off the bat that Peter, Simon, as he was known at that point in time, is, is a fisherman. What does Jesus go on to make Simon later? Peter, a fisher of men. A fisher of men. We'll flip over to the 14th chapter of Matthew. Let's look at a different picture of who this, this Peter is. In the 14th chapter, in the 28th verse, it says this, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. You know the story. The disciples are in a boat. They're out in the middle of the sea. Things have got a little bit tough. They're, they're cruising along out there over the wave tops. And lo and behold, across the top of the waves, skips Jesus. Peter says, Jesus, if that is you, call me and I'll walk out on the water to you. And Peter bails out of the boat, you remember? He bails right out of the boat and all is well, all is well until verse 30. When it says, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. You get a picture of Peter there, don't you? Peter starts off as strong as can be. A little problem happens. Peter starts sinking. Flip over to the 16th chapter, the 16th chapter of Matthew. 16th chapter, 16th verse says this. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. What's the story behind that statement? Jesus. Jesus had asked, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And they gave answers. And then Jesus looked directly at his disciples and had said, who do you say that I am? And Peter. Peter makes one of the greatest statements ever penned in the Bible. When he said there, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. In fact, Jesus makes a statement regarding the church because of Peter's statement about who he was. Look down at the 18th verse. He says this, Jesus, and I also say to you that you are Peter. Remember, he was called Simon Peter, so he's saying Peter here. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. He's not saying on Peter I will build my church, as one religious community seems to think. He's saying on the statement of what you made will be the rock, the foundation of what it means to be a church, what it means to be a Christian. The statement of Peter. So we see Peter Peter doing the right thing. He sunk. Now we see Peter doing this right thing. In that same chapter, though, look over at verse 23. <laughs> Let's see Peter again. It says, 
But he, talking about Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. This is the guy. This is the guy that just looked at Jesus, said, You're Christ, and you're the Son of the living God. And now Jesus says to him, Get behind me, Satan. Because Peter had just rebuked Jesus, Jesus now rebukes him. In his rebuke, he's telling Peter and all those that are listening that it is God's plan that he would go to the cross and he would die for their sins. The disciples don't want to hear that. They're like, no, no. Peter steps forward and says, there's no way that's going to happen. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Because there's only one individual, if they knew the whole story, that would want Jesus not to die on the cross. His name is Satan. It's only Satan that doesn't want Jesus to die on the cross for your sins because without his death on the cross, you stay in sin and you are Satan's. And see, here we see Peter being rebuked. Flip over very quickly to the 18th chapter. 18th chapter, 21st verse. It says this, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? So we've seen Peter. We've seen Peter here low, sinking. We've seen him on a mountaintop with a great statement. We've seen him be accused of of Satan leading him. Satan, get behind me. And now we see him saying, hey, Jesus, how many times? You know what he's really saying? How many times have I got to, when can I retaliate? Do I always have to forgive? When can I get back at him, Jesus? You see Peter's heart? You see, you see his heart fluctuating? Look at the 26th chapter. And I'm just flying through these for you. But the 26th chapter, I'm in the, 20, in the 33rd verse, I'm sorry, the 33rd verse of the 26th chapter, it says this, Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. You know the rest of the story. You know the rest of the story. (laughs) Peter declared that he would never, under any circumstances, no way, it's not going to happen. The others may fall flat on their face, but not me, Jesus. (laughs) I'll be there. I'll be there till the end. (laughs) Uh, Look down at verse 35. (laughs) Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Peter finally says, I'm, I'm not just going to stumble. Even if it means I have to die, Jesus, I'm going to be right there with you. Right there with you. Look at the 75th verse of that exact same chapter. 75th verse says this, And Peter remembered the words of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Look at Peter. Peter, I'll never deny you. I'll die with you. He got to hear a rooster crow. He got to hear a rooster crow just as Jesus said. And it reminded him of what Jesus had said. And it reminded him of how he had denied Jesus three times. See, Peter was one of the three that Jesus took to the inner garden to pray. And he come out and said, what are you doing sleeping? Peter was the one in the upper room when Jesus knelt to wash their feet. Peter said, wash all of me. And Jesus had to say, no, not all of you is dirty. You've been cleaned. I just need to wash that dirt of the 
the dust off of you, that sin that comes into your life even after you're saved. I just need to wash those things off. Peter was the one in the garden. Peter was the one in the garden, if you remember, when they came up and Judas had come up and kissed Jesus on the cheek. Peter's the one that reached for his sword and took the ear off of the high priest's servant. That was this Peter character. Peter was also the one, if you remember, at the resurrection that raced John to the tomb. John so eloquently points out to us that he beat Peter to the tomb. Why did they run to the tomb? Because they didn't believe what they had been told by the women when they said, He is risen. They had to go see for themselves. Peter was the one that at the seashore, after Jesus had returned, that Jesus looked him in the eye, and three times he asked him, Do you love me? He was the one that Jesus restored to the ministry. He was saying, in essence, Peter, I forgive you. I forgive you for that now. Do you love me? This is the Peter that we see. And in that upper room, there's 120 of the faithful believers that are gathered, the believers in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And from that 120, there's one named. It's Peter. It's Peter, the disciple with the foot and mouth disease, if you've heard me say. He was constantly opening his mouth and putting his foot in it because he didn't think about what was being asked of him or what was being said. But you know what's amazing to me about this? It only mentions the one name, but it doesn't mention anybody opposing it. It doesn't mention anybody opposing it. Could be that they weren't Baptist. You know, most Baptist meetings, whenever you have a vote, there's always one no, unless you're voting to adjourn and go home. Isn't that right? But nobody, nobody opposed. Peter. Peter was saying there was no opposition to it. Peter had always kind of been in the forefront. He'd always interjected himself uh, in any question. He'd always been the one who would, would just go dead ahead without thinking. But even after her statements about stumbling, which the others heard, he was in their midst when he said, these other 11, they may be sorry and fall, but not me. Even whatever he said, they, they might not go to, to their death, but I will. Even when he was in the boat and he stood up and said, lead them in the boat. I'll come to you, Jesus. Just call me. Even when he'd said all those things around him, when God put him in as the leader of this bunch, no one, no one was opposed. Even, even after him cursing Jesus and denying him, even after that, there was no opposition. And I believe this was foretold. I believe this was foretold by Jesus in that Matthew 16, 8 verse we read when he says, I say to you, Peter, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. If you know anything about the name Peter, it's a play on words for Jesus because Peter's Petros, which means pebble, small rock. And Jesus is saying even on the smallness that you're going to represent, in your life, I'm going to build my church on the rock of the statement that you said. Jesus was saying that statement of faith was where the church would start. And now as the church is rising up, as it's, as it's coming from the ground, breaking forth, we see Peter being at the front. Church, if there's one thing, if there's one thing that's needed in the church today, it's for more men of God to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, 
and to be willing to take positions of leadership in the church. The church today is in decline because the men in the church aren't willing to stand up for the truth of God and lead the church. Men, we need to go out and be on the front of the battle line. We need to be the ones at the very front of what's happening as the church is led forward. It's Men, we need to stand up. We need to take positions in the church of leadership for the sole purpose of the church reaching the lost in our community. See, taking a position in the church is not about prestige. It's not about power. It's not about getting your way. What it is is about Jesus Christ being Christ and being the son of the living God and spreading that message to all the other ends of the world. See, Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head. We are the body. The body does what the head says. And if anybody, if anybody gets the honor and the glory for what happens in this place, it better be Jesus. See, we need to lead by example. And that starts with Jesus Christ being in our lives, being the head of our lives. So I asked you this morning, is, is Jesus Christ in your life? Have you ever accepted him as your Lord and Savior? Have you ever come to realize the fact that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and there's only one? And that's Jesus. See, it starts there. But it doesn't stop there. Is, is he your Savior? But also, is he your Lord? Has he punched your ticket to heaven? But have you left him on the shelf? On your daily walk? You see, for the church to be all that a church could be, He's going to have to be the Lord of the ones in the church. He is going to have to be the ones, the Lord of the ones in the church. So we see God's people. Secondly, we also see God's plan. Very quickly, to the disciples, I'm sure it looked like everything had fallen apart. I'm sure it looked like the whole world had crashed. Jesus was no longer with them. The numbers had declined. And most significantly, even one of their, one of their own had bailed out. So when they looked at it from a worldly point of view, things weren't going very well. Where was God in all this? Had God been caught by surprise with this, this Judas move and Jesus been put upon the, upon the cross? Why, why hadn't he stepped in? Why hadn't God stepped in and stopped all of this? Where, where's God? <laughs> those questions sound familiar, don't they? Don't those questions sound familiar? <laughs> those are the questions we ask when it seems like God has abandoned us in our tough times. It's the same questions we ask. When we think God does not know what's going on in our life, when we want to believe that God's there but we can't see Him, we ask those same questions. We have all had those moments when we questioned God. When we cried out, God, where are you? Why could you let this happen in my life? Don't you care about me, God? Can't you see those same questions running through their mind as they're gathered? I take great comfort in knowing that God has a plan. Great comfort knowing that he has a plan. And just like you, I can't often see what that plan is and its fulfillment, but I have faith that God has a plan. Look at God's plan there in that 16th verse of Acts chapter 1. It says, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and attained a part in this ministry. And he goes on to talk about this field that, that he wound up committing suicide in that was bought with the money that he threw at the feet of the priest. When they said, we can't put that money in the treasury, it's blood money, they went out and purchased the field, and lo and behold, it became a field called Akeldama, which is the field of blood. And it tells you that story. Well, uh, what do you see? What do you see about this, this plan? See, Peter stood up in the midst of them, in the midst of these 120, and he tells them about God's plan. 
He reminded them that God had prophesied through David in the Psalms that Judas would be a betrayer. How do you know God has a plan? He foretells it. He foretells it. See, we see here, just as he said, Scripture being fulfilled. Scripture being fulfilled. He reminded them that Judas had obtained a part in their ministry. He had been a part of that. Then he takes the Scriptures themselves that they're so familiar with, that they know, he takes those and he brings these things that were said in the Scriptures back to their remembrance. How do I know that? Verse 20. Verse 20 says, Let his dwelling place be made uh, desolate and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. You know where those two things come from? The first one, Psalm 69.25. The second one, Psalm 109.8. Both of those are pulled directly from Scripture. When he goes to explain the plan of God, he reaches back to the prophecy of God and says, let me tell you, God had this under control the whole time. See, Psalm 69, 25 speaks of Judas' removal, being taken out of his position. Psalm 109, 8 speaks of someone being put into his place. This may seem insignificant, but think about it for just a minute. The grand plan of God throughout all the Bible. Think about how God set up his plan. What's significant about someone filling the seat of Judas? Think about the number 12 with me for just a moment. The number 12. Remember, Jesus chose 12 to be disciples. How does that fit in? Very quickly, because we're out of time. When you read the Old Testament, there's one name that constantly comes to the forefront of the Old Testament. And it's the name Israel. This name Israel that constantly comes to the forefront. It's God's chosen people. If you remember anything about the person named Israel, you remember uh, his name before the wrestling match with God was Jacob. Wrestling match with God, Jacob was changed to Israel. God's chosen people. God's chosen people. The Bible tells us that Israel is God's chosen people. Now what's significant about that? Genesis 49. Genesis 49. And I hate with such late time to have you turn, but it's important you see it in the Scripture and don't take my word for it. Genesis 49. Genesis 49 gives us the last words of Jacob. The last words of Jacob. Now in Genesis 35, it is said in the 22nd verse that now the sons of Jacob were twelve. So it's stated that in Scripture. When you come to this Genesis 49, you read through, and lo and behold, you count up 12 names. There's 12 names of the Son. In that 28th verse of Genesis 49, it says, And these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. What's significant about that? We see chapter 35, the 22nd verse, saying that Jacob, Israel, had 12 sons. We see Jacob there, the 49th verse, or the 49th chapter, going down each of those and blessing them. And at the end, he doesn't say these are the 12 sons. He said these are the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes. The Bible says that they were more than sons. They were the heads of the 12 tribes that would make up Israel, God's chosen people. And all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, guess what you see? There's 12 tribes. 
You see those 12 tribes. You see that some were godly, some were not godly. And you're probably thinking, Pastor, what in the world has that got to do with us today? Flip to Revelation. Revelation, the 21st chapter. And I wish I had more time this morning to give you all of it. But the 21st chapter of Revelation says this in the ninth verse. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and he talked with me saying, Come, I will show you uh, the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and, and high mountain and showed me this great city. And what's the great city? The holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a precious stone, like a jasper stone clear as crystal you get the picture read the next verse also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates lo and behold the number 12 again how does that fit in with what i told you a while ago it says and 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of israel see there was this number 12 this number 12 that's run all the way through all the way from genesis When Jacob had 12 sons, he blesses them, and they're called the 12 tribes. We see them here in what's coming ahead for us, their names being written. Their names being written there on those those gates that surround. The 12 tribes, they hold a prominent place in this new Jerusalem that's coming. This new Jerusalem, you may still say, what's that got to do with the disciples? Look at 14th verse. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. Ah, The number 12 again. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The day that Judas decided to betray, betray Jesus didn't stop God's plan. God knew. God knew. Because he'd already set forth that their names of the 12 would be the foundation. Do you think one of those names are going to be Judas? I do not. I do not. The foundation of the wall that surrounds the great city is going to have the names of the apostles. Why? Because the foundation of the church comes from the apostles. The statement of the head of the apostles, Peter, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. All of those things wrapped together tell us that the foundation of the church and this new great city that we so look forward to are based on what the apostles teach and have taught. You may ask if God was... If it was God's plan to have 12 apostles, didn't Judas' betrayal and fall from that position just mess up God's plan? (laughs) No, it did not. As a matter of fact, very quickly, Psalm 55, Psalm 55 is a, is a Psalm of David. If you remember, David was a, a, a foretelling, a, a symbol, a picture of Jesus whenever he come. And, the, and for shortness, just in the 12th verse of that 55th chapter, it says, For if it is not an enemy who reproaches me, uh, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal. My companion and my acquaintance, we took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. See what David's saying? David's mentioning that there was this person that was intimate with him that he walked to the house of God with, that he spent time with, that had betrayed him. Remember, David's a picture of what's coming in Jesus. That's the story of Jesus and Judas. One who was close to him, who ate with him, who spent time with him. Who heard him teach. Who saw him heal. Yet Judas' heart was never for Jesus. Judas' heart was for himself. He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. 
the cost of a worthless field. The cost of a worthless field. And like it says in that 15th verse there of Revelation of, of Psalm 55, he sealed his fate. He sealed his fate. A destiny in a place called hell. He sealed his fate. Even though it looked like God's plan had been thwarted, even though it looked like it was completely over, in fact, God's plan was moving ahead. God's plan was moving ahead. You know, God has a plan. God has a plan. He has a plan for each of you. He has a plan for this church. He has a plan to glorify Himself through us here at Morris Creek Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.